0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Good morning or afternoon or evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Daniel Foch. I'm a real estate broker practicing in the greater Toronto area. I'm joined here by my co-host, dear friend and Instagram handle, my buddy, Nick. Nick, how's it going?
1: buddy? Come on. It's going well. I mean Yeah, I think it's going well. I mean, it's summertime here, so that's nice. I don't know when people are gonna be listening to this, but it's summertime I can't complain about the weather, but I can find some stuff to complain about when we start looking at these headlines. Well, babe. doom
0: and gloom, yeah, maybe. I mean that's what that's what the media is here for, right? The sky is allegedly falling in, in the Canadian real estate market. It is I've always found it interesting how quickly the media can kind of whiplash from bear case like this house sold four hundred thousand dollars over asking price in like I I was seeing some of those like in March April right when people were like yeah the peak is like gone like we're already down ten percent so I think you and I have sort of established the objective here that on a monthly basis and we would actually encourage our users to submit articles that they want us to kind of unpack what we want to do is we want to read a couple of headlines summarize a couple of articles these are the ones that are going to be the most popular during that period of time and we're gonna distill what this means for the average Joe Canadian real estate investor, how it can help us, how it's going to impact existing holdings that we might have and how it might impact investment decisions moving forward. So give me an idea of the... And we want to make this again like a monthly episode. So please send us articles that you want us to opine on and we will absolutely do it. What articles are we going to be covering today, Nick?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're going to be going over some of the development charges that the city of Toronto has recently imposed and updated. We're going to be going over some of the canceled listings that are at an all-time cancel high. Culture, we're going to be cancel going- Cancel culture, make it all the way to, to real estate? Oh, you didn't do that, did you? Come on now. <laughs> we're going to be talking about HELOC debt and how Canadians are just addicted to that and it's majorly on the rise. And we're going to be talking about Canada as a whole has the landlord fever. And you know what? I'm sick. I'm sick with landlord fever myself, so I can't even chirp that one. But Dan's right. We're going to be talking about all of this stuff today. We want to make these episodes reoccurring kind of as a more of a news segment. So, you know, we do the work for you. We do the research. You guys just listen and learn. We also want to start doing the the Korea updates. On a monthly basis. So, any other episodes, as we're still in our infancy here, this is episode six, everybody. As we find our footing more and more and kind of develop a bit more of a track record, I guess, let's figure out what you guys want to hear, right? We're here to give you guys what you want. So, creostat updates, occasional news updates, you know, obviously to high level guests, and then some great evergreen content. We're thinking that's how the show is kind of going to evolve. Whatever you want to hear, whatever you want to see, reach out to Dan and I. We're very responsive. We're always looking for feedback. Unless it's mean, then don't talk to us. And don't write I a view actually, you. you. can just, send just me mean feedback, to someone else. but just
0: be aware that like I am insanely nice to people who are mean to me. That's how I deal with it. Like If you watch me engage internet trolls, because I do it very, very, very regularly, <laughs> I, there's this – I don't know who came up with this idea, but it's called killing someone with kindness. And I don't know if I'm good at it, but I certainly try my best to do it, so. Be mean
1: to me. Just do it. You're a nice guy, buddy. You're great. Uh, for me, on the other hand, I can't handle it. I'm sensitive. I'll just go cry in the corner and it's not good for me. It's not good for the podcast. So just be nice, okay? Well, come on. We're working hard here. Anyways, so, let's dive in. Talking about crying. Though. Tell me what's happening with development charges. <laughs> <laughs> aye, aye, aye. Okay. Well, so we've all seen the CMHC stuff, the reports on the massive labor shortage, construction costs are still on the rise. It's not a good situation with the amount of homes that need to be built with where we are. We are not on track to do that. And guess what? The Toronto City Council is making that even more difficult. They are now hiking development charges, adding tens of thousands of dollars to the cost of new housing. So for a residential building, charges have gone up 46%, just insane. So obviously the builders are now saying, well, this is going to... It result in less homes being built. You charge me 50% more, I'm going to be able to do less work because my costs are through the roof. So, Raising the development charge comes in the wake of the change in the provincial law, which required the city to review and update its charges. A report from the Toronto municipal staff says the city faces $67 billion in a capital bill over the next two decades, and about $15 billion of that is associated with costs created by new development. So under this plan approved last Tuesday, development charges for a detached and semi-detached houses would rise from $93,978, so call it $94,000, to $137,000 for a semi-detached. For an apartment with two or more bedrooms, the charge would rise from $55,012 to $80,218. For apartments with fewer than two bedrooms, it would rise from 35,910 to 52,367. I mean, these numbers make it real, like you're tacking on the whole profit. There goes the profit margin. So, just one more piece there, Dan, and, and then we'll start to unpack that. So, the Greater Toronto Apartment Association noted that the city already falls far short of the amount of buildings required. Nothing we didn't know already. Within Toronto, an average of about 1,500 rental units are completed annually. Actually, that number kind of surprised me. It's a little lower than I expected. So 1,500 rental units are completed annually. Well, more than 4,000 are needed to meet demand. So we aren't even halfway there. Man, what do you think about those numbers? Like when we go from ninety three thousand to one hundred and thirty seven, or fifty five to eighty, how are developers supposed to make money in this market? They're not, I guess. I, I honestly think that that's sort of the
0: point. It really, <laughs> honestly, like we've reached this point where you have a government that talks a lot about wanting to create affordable housing, but when push comes to shove, you know, the policy decisions just aren't reflective of that. Right? There's no way that like this is a net inflationary policy and and this also comes on the back of inclusionary zoning and it comes on the back of increasing development charges within the last 5 10 years maybe by 110%, right? So more than doubling them. I understand that Toronto's tax structure is one where they try and front load as much of those taxes, housing associated taxes onto the transaction. As possible. So through development charges and through municipal land transfer tax. And that allows their property taxes, their annual property taxes to be record low. But that actually is a policy decision that increases disparity. And this one might actually be a little bit tough for me to get away with saying. But when this article was originally posted by the Globe and Mail, I actually responded to the article on Twitter because they asked it in a question. It was like, oh, Toronto is in the middle of a housing crisis why are we now increasing development charges by 46% or whatever? And my the, my response to the tweet had like hundreds of likes and retweets. It just said, so that people who live in $10 million mansions, existing single family detached mansions, don't have to pay a lot of property tax. And that's the honest answer to the question, right? right. I mean, the reality is... And some people will say you need to distinguish between the different revenue sources because revenue that is supposed to be allocated to capital projects like increasing water, sewer, infrastructure, etc. is in one account, let's call it. And the operating expenses, that is in a different account. And that different account is contributed to by property tax revenue. So regular annualized property tax revenue. And the capital expense account is contributed to by development income. But the reality is, I mean... That's an accounting issue that could be solved, right? I think that if you want to solve this problem, increasing the cost structure of housing in an inflationary way is never going to do that, right? These are only just more costs that are being stacked in that will ultimately end up being capitalized into the the cost structure for the end user to
1: absorb. I couldn't agree more. You know, who's gonna end up paying for this, right? You're decentivizing developers to do what developers do, which is develop. But at the same time, it's the average person trying to go buy their first condo or buy their first townhome that's really getting screwed here. And I mean, I totally understand the cost of everything's going up. You want to build, you know, three hundred new houses here or a condo over here? Well, we've got to put the sewer line to it. You know, we've got to build a park around it. There's got to be x amount of green space, and X amount of parking, and all these things cost money, and they cost the city money. But when we see costs go up, you know, I mean, everyone out there thinks developers are these, you know, they're all the Black Rocks of the world, right? The ones that make so much money, every, you know, the guys right. in suits up in ivory towers. And that's just simply not the case. There's a lot of small-scale developers that now are having trouble even developing because their profit margins have been – completely taken away. Yeah, for sure. There's. I think
0: we've seen 45 project cancellations in the city of Toronto so far this year, and a good portion of those are purpose-built rentals. So disincentivizing real estate development, like you're describing, is not a good thing. It's a very, very bad thing. And increasing the cost structure again through taxes, increasing the development charges that developers have to pay is only going to exacerbate that. Like The 45 projects that have canceled this year is probably due to construction costs inflating. And now we're starting to see some more cancellations as a result of prices and pre-construction condominium sales not being as strong as they were. Then now you're adding another force that is only going to decrease the potential supply of housing. Now, it is worth noting that a lot of people say that there's almost like this arbitrage that exists in Canadian real estate where we have more people who want to buy houses in Canada than there are houses in Canada. And so eventually, this could potentially expedite our ability to get to an equilibrium in which supply will not catch up to demand as long as we keep those immigration numbers and more people want to buy houses in Canada. I do think that that's relatively correct, but you don't measure the price of a house in people. Your house isn't worth 400,000 human beings, as an example. It's worth. Right, It is. So it's worth however much those people are able to pay. And we're starting to see the fact that capital costs and liquidity matters in real estate prices. So I'm interested to see where this one plays out. But this is a supply constriction and it's ultimately an inflationary force in the real estate market. So what it means for investors is potentially this is actually a hedge factor down the road, right? It constricts supply, keeps that demand and excess demand territory. And it is an inflationary factor that developers are only going to be incentivized to bring new units to market if the values are going up. So that means that eventually values have to come up for us to meet those supply targets. So as an investor for these types of projects in the city of Toronto, the reality is these are probably hedge factors from my perspective.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. It seems that with this the average person is essentially being forced out, right? I mean, when when the profit margin disappears for the developer, it's essentially the trickle-down effect. That's a pretty good segue into what we kind of touched on in in that segment, which is property listings canceled like never before. So property listings across Toronto, and I I don't think this is a strictly unique problem to Toronto. I think it's probably a more Ontario and maybe Vancouver-centric problem. The rest of Canada probably isn't seeing as much of this as we are in the GTA but hey, we're in the GTA and apparently this is the center of the Canadian universe. So we're talking about it. So the fact is sellers aren't getting what they want. Expectations for a lot of people are still from a few months ago, right? Your neighbor sold back in February and got 400,000 more than they should have, or that was reasonable. And now you haven't gotten there yet. You don't realize that that's done. So Now we're seeing listings being taken down. We're seeing them be relisted at lower prices. We're seeing other listings being relisted with new photos or a fresh coat of paint, staging, maybe some increased curb appeal. And some of them are just literally being taken off the market entirely.
0: Yeah. So I think that you know there's a couple of different factors here that need to be considered, right? So relisting is a tool that realtors will use. So they'll pull the listing and then they'll relist it the next day or at a later date. And you'll often see this happen in the summer markets, especially where it's like, ah, we don't want to have showings or a house or there's no point in our property being on the market. It's just gonna get stale and whatever. So we'll just relist it in September when the fall market's back. We saw it happen a couple of times throughout the last couple of years. I watched supply and demand quite closely. So I don't think the cancellation factor is a as a massive thing, but I think that it to me that this headline signals the bearish undertone that the media is finally taking on real estate. Not finally, but they've made that shift now that they're rep- that's how they're representing the market. And this is just a thing to talk about. Cancellations are not uncommon. Yeah, they're starting to increase. We are seeing an uptick in cancellations, but we're also seeing an uptick in supply, right? And in listings, and we're seeing a massive decrease. We know already that there's a massive decrease in the demand side, the number of transactions. So, volume is low, even if supply stayed consistent, a portion of those listings are either gonna have to sit on the market and expire or they're gonna have to be canceled, right? So I don't know if it's as big of a thing. The final component is, you know, you're starting to see with the rental market being exceptionally strong, especially in Toronto, if you're a condo owner and you're saying, Oh my price yeah, I could keep decreasing the price, or I could just, you know, at this point, finally this condo might be cash positive. So I'm just going to go rent it out, right? And so a lot of people are saying, oh, we're seeing a wait and see phenomena on the buy and sell side. I'd say we're actually seeing what's called a rent and see phenomena, right? I mean, if you're going to weather the storm, you might as well have some money going into your pocket during that period of time. So I think that I would be interested to chart side by side the new listings for rent alongside the cancellations of properties for sale because I would imagine, and, and I've tried doing some of these things with Jeff from the Habistat, seeing if we're seeing the same property being relisted, for rent right after it's canceled for sale. And we've also noticed an increase in the number of listings that are being listed both for sale and for rent, right? So you have owners who are now exploring either option rather than just one because it's coping with uncertainty and you're starting to see people doing that in real time and it's starting to show up in the data.
1: Well, I mean, one I love a few things you said there. Did you say rent and see instead of yeah. wait and see? Yeah. Okay, so one that that's a trademark of this show now. That that's a Dan Fosher original. I love that. And I've never heard that before listing a property for both sale and for rent and kind of seeing what it takes. That, that's a very interesting method and to be honest, that's something I love as an investor because I you and I both know as we talk about it all the time, multiple exit strategies, right? If yeah. you can't get the price you want, how do you weather the storm until you can get that price without losing money, right? How do you service that debt? yeah, exactly. It's a good way to get exposure
0: to both markets at the same time, and you kind of let the market decide for you right? So you put it up at a reasonable price on both sides, and if you get an excellent tenant or if you get excellent potential rents, then that's a good thing. Or if you get a solid offer on the sales side, then you've fulfilled one of your two potential strategies on the property, right? I think most people right now have a preference for liquidity knowing that we're heading into a recession, rates are increasing, getting out of that debt and having some capital, some dry powder sitting on the sidelines. So you are definitely starting to see a deleveraging and a liquidation from a lot of investors and where there's still availability in the market, but that liquidity is drying up quite quickly, right? So in a lot of cases, the best case scenario for investors who have a property and they're bleeding out or it's fine. Is to get it cash positive, is to get it yielding, right? And that, that's really how you, you know, I mean, I've been consulting with a lot of people, like people on social media who are messaging me saying, oh, I bought in January or February or whatever, you know, they're in, in my comments on some of the charts that I'm posting, et cetera. And they're like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, I mean, your options are pretty limited, right? So let's try and get this thing to produce as much income as they can, you know, especially if you're in a fixed mortgage with a huge penalty or something like that, right? you know you can't build a time machine and get better advice 3 months ago so what's your strategy now and in a lot of cases it's it's rented out
1: i mean dude if we could build a time machine we wouldn't be doing this podcast i'd be i'd be back probably in the 60s at woodstock or something who knows what's anyways. what's that that
0: scene in uh, hot tub time machine <laughs> where the guy goes back and like founds lugal <laughs>
1: like <laughs> <laughs> exactly okay so before we move on from listings being canceled i want to just talk about quickly and get your opinion on what this means for the average home buyer as well as what this means for the Canadian real estate investor. Right. Yeah. So I
0: mean, I I would group this two people together, right? They should both be making buying decisions with the same criteria. The reality is we are in a market that is behaving like a buyer's market, even if we aren't statistically in a market that is a buyer's market. And so as a purchaser, you should be exercising as much of the luxuries that a buyer's market gives you as you possibly can. right? And what this means is try and purchase with a home inspection, try and purchase with a financing condition. I'm seeing offers come in on listings that we have with those conditions. And I'm actually encouraging clients to take them because I'm like, I would actually rather a lot of these things be dealt with now rather than prior to closing. It actually shows prudence to me that people are purchasing sensibly in a market that is risk on, let's call it, right? Yeah. So I think that to me, like the summary is it's become a more favorable market to purchasers. It definitely hasn't become a favorable market to owners on the equity side, but it has become a favorable market to owners on the rent side. So maybe you know, if you've got some excess space in one of your houses, might be worth thinking about allocating some of that capital that you have laying around to putting in another suite or whatever, right? Because juicing up those returns is definitely going to help in the market that we're in.
1: Totally. And I just want to add a few quick points there. From the mortgage side of things, the Bank of Canada has made it pretty clear that they'll be raising rates again. So be prepared to be paying more. I never advise people to go to the absolute max of their purchasing power. I think that's more important now than ever. And for investors, it's going to be harder to do things like the Burr method. It's going to be harder to execute those kind of strategies because Two of the Rs in the bird method is refinance and repeat and you might be getting a better deal now and you might be able to put those conditions in which I'm very happy to see that we've come back to reality with those things. But as interest rates go up, be weary of that, right? Work your numbers with a much higher interest rate. Now that being said, that is a pretty good segue to home equity lines of credit, better known as Helox, one of Canada's favourite products. So a quick definition of a HELOC is essentially, you can borrow money using the home equity through a home equity line of credit. So you are borrowing against your home. So since you own the equity in your home, you can secure a loan against it. And the HELOC is secured by your home, which can allow you to access large funds at a low-ish rate, right? Now, typically, Variable rates are usually prime minus something. So prime minus five, prime minus seven. HELOCs are typically prime plus. So the prime plus five. So it's not a great idea to sit on it in a lot of cases. Typically have, you know, they're higher than variable rates. And I know they're a little bit of a controversial product, especially in this close circle right here. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about them. But overall, the balance of Canadian HELOC debt reached. Da, 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 drum roll, $171.2 billion in this May. So then, when should a HELOC be used? What is a good use of a HELOC? Because I know people that are taking out HELOCs to put in ground pools and you know, people right. taking out HELOCs to go on vacation. What's a good use of a HELOC for a Canadian investor? <laughs> The good use
0: of a HELOC is is nothing. You shouldn't have got a HELOC to begin with. I mean, there are just so many better types of credit out there. I don't like HELOCs. Okay. I, I will start by saying that. But I don't I don't like them for a couple of good reasons. And the first one is that it's much more abusive to your credit, and when I say credit to your bureau, than a amortized term loan, right? So if you're to go get the same amount of capital in an actual amortized loan, you are only going to be underwritten by the credit bureau as if or, sorry, next time you go to get a credit product, as if you have to service that payment, right? So, if you were to get, let's say you get a HELOC of $100,000 on a 25 year AM, that's cut into payments over 12 months, over 25 years. On a HELOC, when you're underwritten to go get the next piece of credit, they will typically, on a line of credit, assume that you have to service that payment over the course of a year or a much shorter period of time, even if it's over a term, right? Over a five year term, let's say. So, that debt obligation shows up and it hurts you a lot more in your TDS and GDS ratios, right? your total debt service and gross debt service ratios, which we are going to talk a lot more about in the future. But basically, these are just underwriting ratios that banks or other lenders will look at to see how much you can possibly borrow based on how much debt you need to service on a monthly basis. So HELOCs hurt you in that respect. The second reason I don't like HELOCs is because they're a credit-first product. So they're designed so that you go get the commitment You've committed yourself to this credit. Even if you don't use it, you have that access to that capital. It's like, I think I maybe mentioned this before, but it's like saying, I'm going to go get a tattoo and not knowing what you want to get. And then trying to fill that idea of getting a tattoo with something important, right? And you're almost like theorizing. So to me, it's like you should have an idea of how you want to spend that money. And I would ideally like it to be somewhere where you're going to get a higher yield than you're paying on that debt. So purchasing an investment property, as an example, using it to buy a cash flowing duplex or whatever it is. And then you go get your credit. And then you go get, from my perspective, a term loan. Because the term loan has a predictable schedule, it's less likely to be called by the lender. And the final reason is because it doesn't get you as high of a leverage point and because the rate is often variable, right? So I don't really love... Like I think HELOCs can only get you to 60% loan to value, right? So if you go get an amortized term loan, when you hear about people doing a Burr method as an example, they do what's called the refinance. And a refinance will allow you to take up to 80% of your equity out of that property in a lot of cases, right? 75, maybe if it's a weirder property in an investment, but you get to a much higher leverage point. So you can take more of that capital out. You're taking it out in a much smarter way. The HELOC is is literally, from my perspective, a piece of credit that is designed to get consumers hooked on credit. That's what I think it is. And I think it's done a damn good job at that. And I think some of the use cases that you're describing for it, vacation, Right pool, whatever. I mean, pool's okay because you're building a bit of equity into your house, but it's still not the best use case, right? So I would say, think about a a good investment first and then go and figure out a way to pay for it through credit. And then that might force you to go actually and buy with a condition on getting money. And now you're buying smarter.
1: Yeah. Listen, there's nothing, the helix are bad, but there's nothing wrong with random bad tattoos. I fully stand behind the butterfly (laughs) on my lower back and i would do it again. (laughs) No, but on a serious note, you're totally right. The HELOC, I believe, has been sold to Canadians as a product that it essentially feels like free money to a lot of people. And it really is the opposite of that, right? You're paying that. Wait, on you fire tell me oil. you gotta pay these credit cards back? Well, you know, eventually. <laughs> and that's the thing that most people don't realize, right? Is that yeah, you're you're borrowing this, you got a big chunk of money, that's great. You know, let's do something with this, honey. Let's take the kids to Disney World, whatever it is. But that money, you're paying a lot of money for that money. And unless that money is being used to make more money, it's probably not a good idea. So be careful with the HELOCs people. 171.2 billion, it's a lot of money that is probably going to be not paid back. I, I know that there's been predictions by some of the big six banks that there's probably going to be some delinquencies in HELOCs coming up in the next couple of months. So little bit scary, but we'll see how it plays out. I'm sure we'll be covering this topic as it slowly starts to unfold.
0: Yeah, I guess we'll see, right? I mean, the Bank of Canada keeps saying the people who are least likely to pay their mortgages are the people who don't have their jobs. So clearly, they're using employment as an important metric in their decision-making, which makes me think that if they are doing that, we, our employment market is ripping right now. So they've probably got a couple more rate hikes in their pocket. So on the note of things that are worth deploying, leverage into... And I mentioned you know, at the end, I'm fully supportive of people levering up properties. I'd prefer if they didn't do it with a HELOC. I would prefer if they did it with the term loan. If they do that, I would highly recommend that they use that capital to not go ball out and buy a sick car or go on vacation or whatever it is, but to redeploy it into investment property because that is how you build wealth. Actually, not even investment property. Redeploy it into anything that yields greater than the interest rate that you're paying on that capital. I don't care if it's Bitcoin, if you are extremely savvy at that and understand the investment well, or if you listen to the Canadian Investor Podcast and want to go through their portfolio. But as long as you're getting a better rate of return on the money than you're paying, it's a good way to use credit. On the topic of buying well, who is buying a lot of properties in the Canadian real estate market?
1: Well, that would be apparently guys like you and me and probably a whole bunch of listeners of this podcast because apparently... Canadian cities have seen almost a hundred percent in some cases of investors buying up new condos, pre-construction stuff. I mean, this has been something that we've seen in the media. I remember headlines a while back that investors had single handedly caused the inflation and the hyperinflation that we saw in the housing market. We'll see how it plays out. As an investor myself, as a what I would like to think of as somewhat an intelligent investor, I don't think I was a part of this problem. But I do know that some people that bought for the FOMO buying or inherited a whole bunch of money and just went and threw it out real estate and drastically overpaid, there was definitely investors that did not do any favors to the average Canadian, to the average Canadian investor and to the Canadian housing market in general. And I'm just going to read a couple stats from our uh, friends at Better Dwelling here. Great publication. Shout out Stephen Pinwasi. Go check Better Dwelling Out. Anyways, data provided by the Canadian Housing Statistics Program shows most recently built condos weren't owner-occupied. Now, this is going back to 2020, but this trend has continued. So Canadian cities have seen as little as 0%, 0% of recently built condos since 2016 go to end users. So an end user would be, I buy that condo, I move in. Investors have out-competed end-users for what's generally considered the most affordable ownership option, which is the starter condo. Even high-volume markets like Greater Toronto, Hamilton, Vancouver are mostly investor-owned. Toronto saw three in five, so 58, almost 59% of the 44,740 recently constructed condos owned by non-occupying owners. Hamilton wasn't far behind with literally 1% below that at 57.5% of its 2,315 units in 2020. Now, that's kind of crazy. I mean, what's your take on that, Dan? Why condos? Why are investors flocking to these condos in, in these hot markets?
0: Yeah. So there's a couple of things I'll talk about in regards to this article specifically, right? So to answer your question succinctly, investors like condos because they're low management, right? And you can buy them at scale and you don't really have to do much, right? You don't have to go check on the plumbing or whatever. The condo, in a lot of cases, the condo corporation does that for you, or it should. The other piece is that I think some of the areas in this article are pretty small. So the data set's probably skewed, I would say. And I would happily have this debate with Stephen on, on Twitter because him and I go at it pretty often on Twitter. Like, I mean, we're, pretty <laughs> good, we're pretty good buddies, but we definitely know how to make a little bit of a spectacle out of a Twitter debate. But if you look at like Norfolk, Ontario, as an example, Norfolk and Woodstock, where 100% of the condos since 2016 are being purchased by investors, they're saying, that's a very small municipality and condos are going to be a very small product. This wouldn't surprise me in such a way that maybe it's a a purpose-built rental building that was just built in a way where the developer actually had Two exits plan. Maybe they were going to sell all the condos and maybe they were going to keep it as a rental. And then, you know, once it's been condominiumized, once you have that documentation in place, you'd have to move all of the units independently. So on paper, it could look that way. And I've actually done deals like that. So that's kind of scenario A. Number two is, you know, they're very small markets. So you have Norfolk, Woodstock, I think Leamington's at 96% there. For those of you Ontario folks, they're not exceptionally large markets. So it might be one or two projects, right? And it's not hard for a developer, as an example. If you go approach Jordan Skrinko, as an example, at precondo.ca, who's a buddy of mine and Nick's, I approached him with a project that we wanted to do out on the East Coast. And I said, if I bring you 50 units and we can bring these things to market at a 5 to 6% cap rate, how quickly could you sell them? And he, could, and he said, I could sell them tomorrow, right? So there's enough pre construction salespeople who have over they have lineups, waiting lists of investors looking for good product. Where if you can bring to market a building and if you're a developer and you need to pre-sell the building quickly to continue to advance the project and get through your capital stack and get to construction financing, then that might be the only way that makes sense. right? To me, I get that the statistic, there's some sex appeal to presenting it as this evil, destructive force in the market. And, and I think that there's an element of that. The financialization of housing in Canada isn't necessarily a good thing. But I think it's also to me, maybe in some of these projects wouldn't have been built if there wasn't investors lining up to purchase all of them. Right? Again, if we're looking at a couple of these smaller markets, Fort St. John, BC is the example where 100% of the purchasers lining up were for investment. If you look at Fort St. John, British Columbia, I mean, Nick, you're from BC. Have you ever heard of that place?
1: Uh, no comment right
0: right exactly so yeah it's it's pretty well interior bc it's almost right on the border to alberta a small city i mean again this is probably one project it might even be one project where you know it was a uh, vacation rentals or something like that probably difficult to finance you're you're probably going to have a high pre construction sales target from your lender right your lender's going to say look we need to see 75 or 100% of these units sold before we're advancing a single dollar of construction financing and the developers calling up a guy like Jordan Skrinko or calling up somebody like that in the BC market and saying, hey, look, I got to sell all these units quickly. They're a good return because we're building them cheap or whatever. We got the land for nothing. Can we get this done? And so that I think that it's not necessarily a good thing that investors are buying so much supply, but if it means the supply gets built from my perspective, to draw it full circle to that original conversation about development charges, it could be better than them being canceled projects or failed projects, right?
1: Yeah, I great full circle there. I totally agree with that. And just not to you know, I know that Dan and I talk a lot about Ontario and, and Toronto. This is happening in Atlantic Canada, Nova Scotia, sixty two point six percent, New Brunswick, fifty four point two percent. This is happening full circle across the country. The landlord fever is everywhere. But you're right, Dan. What does this mean for investors? I mean, is this a problem? Caused by investors or investors actually kind of saving the day for the housing supply here, right? I mean, would these developers be incentivized whatsoever to be building these at the prices that they have to build them at if investors weren't there saying, "Hey, I know how to make this work. I'm going to give you the money, and I'm going to go back and, and rent it to someone else. It's a difficult conversation because you could argue it either way. You could argue right and wrong on on either side of it. What's your take? What does this mean for the average investor across the country? Yeah, I think from my perspective, to the average investor,
0: I can't really answer your question of whether or not this is a good thing, but I like to think that investors, whether they mean to or not, they do create housing and they do it by purchasing supply. A lot of these units wouldn't have been built if there weren't individuals lining up to purchase them at probably more than they're really worth, right? And when you have people who are buying properties at cash negative rental values, They're functionally socializing the cost of affordable housing because the owner is losing money each month so that somebody is able to rent that unit for less than its ownership cost. Now, for regular investors, as you see the amount of investment ownership and institutional ownership in real estate increase, to me, that means that, and I've said this for a long time, we are heading towards a late cycle capitalist economy, right? late stage capitalist economy. You'll go look at most of the Western world, even America is sort of a little bit further ahead of us on the curve of being highly institutionally owned, right? You're hearing about BlackRock, Blackstone, all of these funds purchasing property in the United States. They're doing it all over the world. In Europe, a lot of late stage capitalistic economies have very low home very high institutional and investment ownership, and people are happy renting properties, right? A lot of my – and I think I've mentioned this quite a few times, but a lot of my friends – I'm half Swiss, so I lived in Switzerland for a brief period of time to do my military conscription. Most of my friends there would have a higher net worth than most of my friends here, and almost all of them do not own their primary residence. I think this is an important distinction because it allows us to detach ourselves from the obsession that we have with housing in Canada, because we have this obsession with housing as a wealth building tool, right? The primary residence, I think, is close to 70% of the concentration of Canadian household net worth. And I think that that number probably has come down as prices are coming down, but it's not a good thing from my perspective. I want to see a generation of millennials coming up in Canada who are investing in things that they're passionate about, right? And maybe that's housing, but I don't know. Like I'm exceptionally passionate about housing and I don't use my primary residence as a wealth building tool. right? I rent my house. And I use my skill set and my passion for real estate to create housing through real estate investment. So I would like to see more and more millennials investing in things the way that I see my European friends doing that and not caring about building wealth through their primary residence, so renting. So what does it mean for the Canadian real estate investor? It means that we're heading towards that late cycle capitalistic economy where you have high institutional and investment real estate ownership. And to me, that just makes it a more competitive landscape for investors where you're competing for assets, you're competing for tenants and all of these things, but it ultimately ends up becoming a more rent-based economy. And I think that we're graduating through that cycle right now.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, I think I just want to add one little quote in there from this is probably one of my favorite quotes I've seen in a long time. And this is from at Stripball Guy. At Real Estate Trent, follow him on Twitter, genius out there. He says, I don't buy property because I think the value is going up. I buy property because I can make the value go up. So I think that's a great full circle right there as to developers, the charges are increasing, listings are being canceled, HELOCs are going through the roof, investors are buying stuff up left, right, and center. It's a confusing time out there. For the average Canadian investor, I think it's time to keep your head down, run your numbers, and figure out how to add value. Don't get all caught up in these doom and gloom headlines. Listen to this podcast. This is where the good stuff happens. Anything else before we uh, wrap this up, Dan? No, I I think I would
0: completely agree with your sentiment there. I would argue that every exchange that we have in life, every relationship that we have is ultimately an exchange of value, right? And investing in real estate is the same thing. If you can find a way to create value as a landlord or as some other sort of real estate provider, then you should do that. But if you can't, and if you're looking to extract value, if you're looking to create passive income or just generate a yield, then you might be in it for the wrong reasons or it might just not be the right asset class for you to invest your money in because there are better passive streams. There are streams where you can pull and all that you're giving, the only value that that they're asking of from you is your capital, right? The stock market is an exceptionally good wealth distributor in that respect. So make sure that you know, like when we're looking at a real estate market that is not exceptionally favorable and it's causing us to rethink our relationship with real estate and whether or not we even like real estate as an asset class or an investment because we've been peddled it as this super sexy be all end all investment opportunity for Canadians, maybe it's not that. And maybe we should be thinking about getting into it for the right reasons. And that's what I'm about. And that's what I think this podcast is about. It's how do we do that as real estate
1: investors? Boom. Love it. Okay. That's it today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. It means a lot. It would mean even more if you liked, rated, reviewed, share it with a friend. Reach out to Dan and I on social media. We're responsive. We want to hear from you guys. So please send us your questions. Send us your compliments. Send Dan the mean stuff. Don't, Not not me. Come on, guys, please. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next week.
0: The Canadian Real Estate Investor is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Centre, license number 10317 and a partner in G&H Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a
1: real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.